I got diagnosed with uh, incurable, so-called incurable spinal condition, uh, degenerative bone disease and degenerative disc disease. So my intervertebral discs were deteriorating so much so that my, my doctor at the time told me I had the spine of an 80 year old man and I was just 20 at the time. The human mind really works on questions that drives us. And so I started to change the questions eventually to what is this trying to teach me? So either I'm gonna live my life like this or I'm gonna take my responsibility for my own damn life and do something about it. We're feeling that stress. We're feeling like there's a lot of stuff weighing us down. Oftentimes, we're perceiving the stress or all of these things as something that's bad, or there's a lot of pressure associated with it. If you can get out of your own head, stress is not all bad. You are now tuned in to the Mind Body Podcast where you will go behind the scenes of how the mind of successful entrepreneurs, experts, and true leaders really works. Here you won't just listen, you will understand the guiding principles to create massive change in any area of your life. And of course, this podcast is hosted by the strong, lovely, with the sexy Jewish accent, Lidor Dayan. Welcome to the Mind Body Podcast. I'm your host, Lido Dayan, and in today's episode, I have Sean Stevenson. When it comes to health, there is one criminally overlooked element, sleep. Good sleep helps you shed fat for good, stave off disease, stay productive, and improve virtually every function of your mind and body. That's what Sean Stevenson learned when a degenerative bone disease crushed his dream of becoming a professional athlete. Like many of us, he gave up on his health and his body until he decided there must be a better way. Through better sleep and optimized nutrition, Stevenson not only healed his body but also achieved fitness and business goals he never thought possible. Sean has been featured in Entrepreneur Magazine, Men's Health Magazine, ESPN, Fox News, and many other major media outlets. He is also a frequent keynote speaker for numerous organizations, universities, and conferences. So without further ado, let's begin the interview. So welcome, Sean Stevenson, to the Mind Body Podcast. I'm really honored to have you here on the show, man. Uh, thank you so much for having me. It's my pleasure. Great. So uh, for the people that uh, not really might know who you are, uh, would you like to introduce yourself like in five minutes, please? So my story is kind of interesting. You know, I got into the health and fitness space. Uh, I'm not going to say reluctantly, but a little bit by accident. And well, seeming accident at the time. And, um, you know, I thought that I was going to go to to school and you know to university and possibly uh, become a doctor or something like that but more so I was thinking in terms of a, pharmac- a pharmacological approach uh, allopathic approach not wellness and there's a big difference you know there's a difference between treating symptoms and actually being somebody who facilitates wellness and so when I went to school initially I um, being in a pre-med track, we got a lot of data and, and training regarding disease. And it really created this kind of negative feedback loop for me where my you know, other students would be obsessed with diagnosis. You know, we start learning about a disease and somebody would just feel like, you know, I definitely have that disease. Right? It's kind of like internet today. You know, you start Googling like some symptoms you have and you think you're gonna die. You know, like I have this, I have Ebola, like whatever because it's so broad in its context. And so anyways, that, that drove me to get out of the program. Like I just, I, I didn't have a passion for it. I thought it was really, uh, it, was, it just made me feel bad, you know? And so fate had other plans though. In the interim, I switched over and started focusing on business in school because just kind of like a lot of people were doing it. And everything circled back, man. When I was 20 years old, I got diagnosed with uh, incurable, so-called incurable spinal condition. 
uh, degenerative bone disease and degenerative disc disease. So my intervertebral disc were deteriorating so much so that my, my doctor at the time told me I had the spine of an 80 year old man and I was just 20 at the time. And that sent my world in just this kind of downward spiral pretty quickly because with that severe degeneration where my discs were looking like kind of paper thin and two ruptured discs, uh, was causing a lot of sciatic nerve pain and very, like pain that literally would keep me up at night. If I would change positions, I'd get this kind of shock down the back of my leg and it would jolt me out of sleep. It was kind of terrorizing, man. And so that went on for about two and a half years, which would drive somebody crazy. And so I spent a lot of time trying not to move, ironically. And so I became very docile. I gained a lot of weight, you know, obviously not moving around a lot and eating the college diet at the same time. And so I, you know, like I said, I gained about 45 pounds, 50 pounds. And it wasn't until everything really changed and kind of brought the catalyst for where we are today. And man, I, I really try, try to take time for people to understand this because most times we don't stop and think about it. I actually decided that I was going to get better, better. And most people never do that. You know, it's oftentimes it's very weak in our approach. Like we're like, well, I'll give this a try or I wish that I would get better, or I hope that this works. And it's very weak. The, the power of the human intention is so powerful that when we set our sights on something, when we truly dedicate ourselves to something, everybody listening right now, whether it's a problem that showed up in your life, you know, something with a family member, something you had to figure out, you found a way. You know, whether it was something in your career, getting a job, whatever, when you had to, you did it. But unless our back is against the wall, a lot of times we don't operate at that higher level. And so my back was somewhat against the wall. Like I had seen all these physicians and they told me that there was nothing I could do. And at this point I was really lost, man. You know, I was depressed. I didn't, I'm not gonna say that I was thinking about taking my life, but I didn't really care to be alive, if that makes sense, you know? And I didn't really feel like I had value because my identity was in that person who was gonna be you know, successful, that person who was going to be, you know, uh, something special in the world. And we all, everybody listening feels like, you know, we're special. There's something special about us. And it's because it's us. It's our life. We live in this body and have this consciousness. And we know that there is something special that we're capable of. But a lot of times we just kind of continue to press that down and ignore it and try to fit into this mold of what we think we're supposed to do. So long story short, when I decided to actually get well, I, we can't just decide, we have to do an action. So I put a plan together. And instead of me being so docile, I started to move again, you know, and that was just going to the gym and like pedaling on a stationary bike. And this is coming from somebody who was a high level athlete running a four, five, 40 when I was 15. Now I'm like pedaling on a stationary bike, trying to, you know, do something. I changed the way that I was eating. It started off, man. Real talk, the first thing I did to try to diet and lose weight was I did Slim Fast. You know what Slim Fast is? Slim Fast? What's Slim Fast? Slim Fast is this marketing brand, this company, and you buy these shakes, they're canned shakes, and you're supposed to drink one for breakfast, have one for lunch, and then in the marketing it says, then you eat a sensible dinner. And it tastes like shit. Oh, like, really? It's so nasty. <laughs> uh-huh. And I was doing that. But then I quickly found out, like, listen, this isn't this isn't working. And I asked a fundamental question. All right, so my bones are degenerating, my 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 discs are degenerating. What actually makes my bones? What makes my disc? And when you think about bones and nutrients, what's the number one nutrient that comes to mind? Say again. The number one nutrient that comes to mind for our bones. For our bones. Uh, for... The calcium. Yes. That's usually what we see in marketing is calcium. And so mm-hmm. I believe that, yet I was drinking all of this milk, you know. And so I started to ask, what, okay, so what actually do I need? And it was like 200 things. And most of them were more important than calcium. And so I started to go and find foods that had those things, you know, sulfur-bearing amino acids, polysaccharides, um, vitamin D, K2, all this different stuff. And I got better very quickly. But the biggest component... And where I'll end this story and what ended up coming back into my life about 10 years later was my sleep. Because I was terrorized at night by my condition, my sleep was terrible. And if you're not sleeping well, you're not going to be healing. 
-hmm. If you're not sleeping well, you're not healing well. Because that's when your body really changes from all the good stuff you do. You know, whether it's your training, mm -hmm. whether it's your, uh, you, even your nutrition, a lot of assimilation and metabolism of nutrients and digestion, elimination happens during sleep. You know, you're like, you're, you're burning a lot of calories, burning a lot of energy. Even when you wake up in the morning, this is why our urine is so concentrated. There's so many metabolic processes still taking place and we need to get rid of these toxins. And this is why I advocate for people that when you get up in the morning, drink some water to help to flush out all this metabolic waste. So uh, to wrap the story up, after executing on this plan, improving my sleep, man, I lost 28 pounds in about six weeks, wow. which is not typical. Wow. I just had all this weight on my frame that's not that wasn't supposed to be there. And man, I got my life not just back, but better than it was before. And people saw the transformation. People started coming up to me at my university, faculty members, uh, my professors, students asking me what I did because I looked so different. But not like somebody who lost weight. I looked like somebody who became healthy. You know, like my skin was so pale and just like I looked like a walking, the walking dead. You know, and now I'm radiant and vibrant and just a different energy. You know, and so that was really the launching of my career. Since then, I've worked with thousands of people in my clinical practice. Uh, came a strength conditioning coach, did that for over a decade. I've written an international best-selling book, number one show in the country. Um, speaking on all these different stages, like my life just completely turned a, a 180. But it was because of that moment of decision that everything really changed. That's amazing, man, because, uh, you know, uh, a lot of people say, like, if you can find out how your worst day can become your best day, then anything in your, in your life can change. And you, you really said it like, okay, this is the power of decision. And many of us don't make the decision to do something different when we want to change our life. But what I really think is a decision is like a, a war between ourselves, right? Because Many of us do make decisions, we make bad decisions, but the more decisions that we make and we don't back up that decision, then our muscle become weaker, right? So what was it for you that got that moment that you have and you made a decision to follow through and really commit to it for the long term? Because decision is not enough, you know it and you said it, it's not just like I made a decision, I had to make a plan and really commit to it. So. What do you think uh, really got you to get the ball rolling and really get into the good flow and momentum? Because many people make a decision, but they don't follow through. Yeah, there's two things. Uh, the, and it's such a good question, man. The, the first thing was, I highly recommend when people get a diagnosis of something that can severely change their life, then make sure you get a second opinion, if not a third and fourth, which I did. And every physician told me the same thing that there was nothing I could do. This was something I was going to have to live with. They gave me another prescription. Uh, one physician gave me a back brace to wear and sent me on my way and just say they're sorry. You know, I know you're young, but this is just, you know, bad luck. And after that, man, after the fourth physician told me this story, I had a decision to make in my power as a man if I'm going to allow them to dictate my life. These guys that aren't thinking a damn thing about me when I'm not in that office, but I'm thinking about them all day. Like, why won't somebody help me? Why won't somebody give me some answers, right? And I'm asking these very disempowering questions. And whenever you ask your mind, the human mind really works on questions. That drives us. And so I started to change the questions eventually to what is this trying to teach me? What is this situation trying to develop in me? You know, but this didn't come till a little bit later, but just me having the audacity to see, you know what, I've been putting my life into their hands and believing them. So either I'm going to live my life like this or I'm going to take my responsibility for my own damn life and do something about it. So that was one part. The other part was that's kind of like a negative motivator, like I'll show you, you know, the other part, I think, and really what's really sustainable is is love, you know, and for me, it was for my grandmother. And she just kept calling me through this whole process. She was like the only person, you know, like she, and if you're, when you're young and it's like, you got your grandmother, your mother, just like, come on, mom, like I'm fine, you know, but I wasn't fine and she knew that. And so she kept checking up on me and she's the person who really instilled in me, if anybody, that I was going to do something special with my life, that I was great, that I was 
that I had purpose. And so it just hit me, man, when I was like debating on what these physicians were saying and looking at my life, my blueprint for reality was not what I was experiencing. Mm -hmm. And so I realized that my grandmother had all of these hopes and dreams about me and look at my life. It's, it's like complete and utter garbage right now. And so I wanted to make her proud. You know, I really wanted to step up and to be that person that she always knew that I would be. And fortunately, you know, just not too long after, you know, um, I transformed my life, I began helping all these people around the world and I got married and my grandmother was able to be there and she passed away not too long after that, you know, so she got to see this, this, uh, ascension, you know, not to the point where it ultimately went, but she knew that I was, I was happy and I was okay and she could leave, you know, if that makes sense. So. Yeah, man, it was those two kind of motivating factors. One was a negative motivator, but ultimately the positive motivator is what's going to be sustainable in my opinion. Yeah, that's what I always tell people. Like uh, most of us are trying to avoid the pain and we get motivated to get out of pain, right? But uh, this is just something, it's just like if you were near me right now and I would push you, then eventually you will stop. You will push aside, but you will stop. This is how most people try to uh, get away from problems. So they try to avoid the pain. But the ultimate solution is what you said, it's the pleasure, it's something good. And when we have something good, then eventually it's going to follow, follow us through and we're going to really make it and not just uh, do something one step forward and then the three step backs again, right? So, so I wanted to, to talk with you, because I know you're expert at this, about sleep. You talk about uh, sleeping smarter and you have a book called Sleep Smarter, uh, 21 Essential Strategies to Sleep Your Way to a Better Body, Better Health and Bigger Success. So I want to start by why, what is some of the tools and strategies that uh, you've seen that's really helpful for you and your clients in order to really sleep better because many people have a lot of problems sleeping. They are going to bed and then they like hours by hours, they thinking and still they, they can't sleep. And the very first thing, the most important thing is that at no point do I say you necessarily need to sleep more. All right. It's improving the quality of your sleep. And I think the most important thing, when if, if, if improving your sleep quality is important, it's understanding, getting a great, just a fundamental idea about what sleep is. And so sleep is very difficult to define. But the very best thing that I've been packaging up and kind of pushing into culture is that sleep is how we're able to monitor and know somebody's asleep is changes in their brain waves. All right. So right now we're in a normal beta wave waking state. So there's a little bit faster waves. We can get into gamma, but as we start to transition into sleep, we go into alpha waves, theta, and then ultimately deep delta wave sleep. That's deep anabolic sleep. That's the most anabolic stage that a human could be at. And you need to spend an adequate amount of time in each of these stages as you go through the night. And you can see this now with various sleep monitors and different systems that it's like a pattern that takes place. And so if there are things that you're doing that is interrupting this pattern, it doesn't matter if you're getting eight hours of sleep, you're still going to wake up feeling like trash or you're still going to wake up. I don't know why I'm using trash today, man. I don't know. You can care. You can say whatever you want, <laughs> <laughs> but you're still going to wake up and maybe not have the mental fortitude that you really need throughout the day, or you're going to feel like exhausted and like, I just really need a nap or I'm not going to make it, you know? So when we wonder why, and then we look for a stimulant or some kind of supplement to try to fortify our sleep, which our sleep is the most important thing. There is no sports drink or energy drink that's going to pacify or supplement your sleep. You know, everything is like a temporary band-aid solution. And I've seen over and over again that when people use these things, the, the ground eventually just collapses under them, you know? So ultimately, again, we need to look at how do we optimize these, these different stages of sleep. So just to share right off the bat, one of them, super easy, very accessible. And this was from uh, some research that came out of Appalachia State University. And these researchers sought to find out if the time of day you exercise has an impact on your sleep quality. And the results were shocking at the end of the study when they compiled all the data. So they took people, they had them exercise in the morning at 7 a.m. exclusively 
for one phase of the, st of the study. Then they had these same exercisers train exclusively at 1 p.m. in the afternoon for an extended amount of time and track their metrics. Then they had them train exclusively in the evening at 7 p.m. And they compiled all the data and, and analyzed everything. Now, right off the bat, one of the things that I was taught, and it's even in one of my son's, my youngest son's little kid books, like go to bed books, that the, the characters, the little cartoons in the book, part of their night routine was to exercise. So I guess you can quote, tire yourself out so that you go to sleep. And this is one of those things that, you know, somebody might think on a surface level was something that was okay to do, or that was the right thing. Come to find out after they compiled all the data, when people exercise in the morning, they had the most efficient sleep cycles. So spent more time in those, all those different stages in a way that transitioned properly. They spent more time in the anabolic deep stages of sleep, so delta wave sleep. They tended to sleep longer when they exercise in the morning. And this is the possibly the biggest thing. When they work out in the morning, they had a 25% greater drop in blood pressure at night than working out at any other time. And what that correlates to is turning off that fight or flight sympathetic nervous system, which you talked about a minute ago about people just being, you know, tossing and turning, like being up in their mind, a lot of stuff going on. That's that sympathetic fight or flight nervous system going on. All right. So what they were able to do was to help by exercising in the morning, helping them sleep better at night. So bottom line takeaway point is a great night of sleep starts when you wake up in the morning. That's when you really set the template, right? And so that's just one thing. And again, everything in the book, there's 21 strategies, is all backed by clinical data. But it's, I think it's a big claim to make, no? Because each person is, uh, is different and individual. So let's say we take a person that's a walk out in the morning and another one in, at night, but his nutrition sucks and maybe drink coffee. So there are so many stuff that, uh, like the, those little stuff that can make a difference. So it's really a big claim to make, no? Don't you think? Absolutely. This is why, you know, for, for me in my practice, I've always been about stacking conditions because it doesn't matter if you work out in the morning and then you're like getting hammered at like 10 o'clock at night, you know, drinking vodka or whatever, you know, it's going to neutralize this stuff, you know? So it's keeping everything in context because there are people that are listening right now that work out in the morning and they're like, maybe they're struggling with their sleep quality. So if you're, if you're doing this piece, but then you're on your device or watching, you know, Game of Thrones or whatever reruns uh, right before bed, you know, at midnight or whatever. Yeah. Then your sleep quality is going to be thrown off. So it's keeping all this stuff in context. And by the way, everybody can utilize this piece. And I'm not saying that you can't exercise in the evening or the early afternoon specifically, ideally, uh, or early evening. You just need to get this morning exercise in to help to optimize your sleep cycle because throughout human evolution, Humans would get up around the time the sun comes up because that's the time when things are less dangerous for you to procure your food, for you to do things for your tribe. And but now we're very much, you know, and there are these different kind of chronotypes where some people are more like night people, whatever. We've had that. There is a lineage of that with a person who's up watching over the tribe, you know, but that's a lot fewer percentage of people in the population that still kind of have that thread. And even then, when they do get up, even if it's 9 a.m. when they actually get up or 10 a.m., get that morning exercise in because it does something called a cortisol reset. This helps to get your cortisol elevated when you wake up, which is the normal time for your cortisol to be at its peak. It's supposed to spike and then gradually go down. And even if you, for example, make a 15 minutes workout, because many people, okay, they say, okay, I hear you, Sean, but... I don't uh, have time, you know, uh, in the morning. I can only work out at night. So even if you do, for example, a 10 minutes workout or something that uh, raise your uh, heart rates up, can do yeah. a difference? Even four minutes, even doing some Tabata, you know, mm -hmm. which takes four minutes. Just do something that's correct. Just do something to get your heart rate up. I, today, I just went for like a power walk this morning, you know. I usually do hit the gym in the morning. This is, you know, I'm a morning exerciser. But today I did it, you know, so I went and just kind of got my heart rate up. Nice walk. I got this super steep hill by my house. And that's that's enough to facilitate kind of wake yourselves up, get your cortisol moving in the right direction. And some people might be like, well, why, I don't, why would I want my cortisol to be elevated? Cortisol is not bad. It's just a problem when it's produced at the wrong time. 
-hmm. and in the wrong amounts. Mm -hmm. Your cortisol is supposed to be elevated in the morning. That's normal. Before we go uh, into stress, because I, I know that stress is very important also when we talk about sleeping, I, I want to really that people that are going to listen to this actually uh, understand that uh, what you want to really master is like really become a learning machine. And learning machine means that no matter what I said or Sean or any other people that's going to be here in the podcast, you want to always be with uh, one eyebrows up, like, okay, understand it, try it, and see for yourself what's good for you. For example, like, I always thought like, okay, intermediate fasting, you remember, that was a really big trend. And I was like, okay, intermediate fasting, let's do it. And after a while doing this, it got me to uh, excessively eat. So what I, I, I want to, uh, to people understand it, what works for one person doesn't necessarily gonna mean that it's gonna work for you. So we all want to always try like a week, two weeks and see if it works for us because if it's not, move to another thing. Exactly, what works for you versus somebody else, but also work, what works for you right now. And that might change, mm -hmm. you know? Yeah, yeah, because somebody might do great six months on a keto diet, but then their testosterone might go down. Mm -hmm. Or they're doing a vegan protocol and then, you know, over time they start having issues with their thyroid or, um, and the list goes on and on, you know, so it's just keeping everything in context. I don't want people to get into religiosity when it comes to nutrition or any, I mean, just anything in our lives that start to hinder us because of our belief system that this is what I'm supposed to do. Mm -hmm. But then it blatantly starts to hurt you or, you know, in the worst case scenario, it starts to kill you, you know, so... I think that's really important, man, so thank you for bringing that up. Yeah, and I, I think it's a lot about psychology, right? So many people can uh, learn all these strategies that you give them, read your book, but still the, the inner thoughts are not, like they didn't shift it. So this is what makes us a lot of stress. So how would you handle stress? For example, you have a long day, you have so many stuff to do, you have your wife, you have your kid. Uh, your business to run and you start to feel that stress inside of you. So what do you do in those moments in order to shift it and really make yourself more calm? Oh man, this is the, and, and to be real, this is one of the most difficult things in our universe as a human, you know, um, because stress, stress is ever prevalent. But I think it's important to understand, first and foremost, your thoughts create chemistry in your body, you know. Um, your brain is the most powerful pharmacy on earth and every thought has correlating chemistry that comes along with it so you know just thoughts of stress of anger of, of, of being anxious about something you can feel it in your body based off of, of the thoughts that you're creating there's a correlating chemistry the same thing with joy you know or love somebody's not doing it to you you're creating this chemistry in your own body you know based on your perception of reality and so that's what it really starts with is your perception of reality because when we're feeling that stress, when we're feeling like there's a lot of stuff weighing us down, oftentimes we're perceiving the stress or all of these things as something that's bad or there's a lot of pressure associated with it. You know, so with that said, um, having this, it, it's kind of like zooming out and taking a meta perspective is one of the techniques. So if you're in a conflict with another person, for example, and maybe you care about the person, but you, you've got this conflict, oftentimes that person is so inside their body and you're so inside yours and it feels like you're against each other. You're not on the same team. When in reality, like you both have each other's best interests at heart. You both have each other's back. But why is this fight taking place? And if you can get out of your own head, not necessarily even look through their point of view, but just take a global perspective, zoom out, look at the room, look at the situation. What are they trying to accomplish? What am I trying to accomplish? How am I not communicating things properly? What are they possibly doing that's causing this inflammatory response? It's important to, of course, inhabit your own body, but we have this capacity as humans to zoom out and look at things from other points of view. You know, So that's one tactic in and of itself in a state of conflict. But as far as just feeling that weight and that pressure itself, I think we also need to switch our perception about what stress is as well. Because stress is not all bad. In fact, stress is one of the things that make, make us great. You know? And if we can embrace that and understand that 
there's something that's called a hormetic stressor. All right, this is what we label it as. This is what a, what a quote good stress. So maybe a good example is working out. Working out is an incredible, especially if you just say you're doing like a a tough like um, you know circuit workout or some high intensity interval training. It's a pretty stressful thing on your body to the degree that if I take you after doing that hit training, maybe I have you do some sprints, and then we go get your blood work done. You're going to have elevated cortisol. You're going to have uh, your blood sugar is going to be uh, dysregulated. Heart stress hormones are going to be up. Blood pressure is going to be up. Body temperature is going to be off. We can get you some. We can get you a prescription for something. Like we can get you diagnosed with a disease. All right, crazy as it sounds, but all you did was a great workout. You know. This stressor, hormetic stressor, enables you to get better, but that's based on the recovery. So you have to recover from that stress. So starting to flip this switch in our mind to see, okay, like I'm feeling this stress, but it's making me better. You know, I'm experiencing this kind of level of pressure, but it's okay. You know, it's just it's making me stronger, more capable. Now there is a there is a divide though. There is another side of stress where it can be damaging, and we need to just develop that. Uh, proclivity to be able to notice like okay this I'm getting into a place where this stress is hurting me you know it's not creating the conditions for me to get better so oftentimes the stress that we do experience on a daily basis it's very small things mm -hmm. but it's creating our overall stress load so you might have stress at work stress in your relationships maybe your kids then you've got like a mental emotional stress then you throw on top of that stress from your diet you know, if you're not eating the right things for you right now, then you throw on stress from your training. Maybe you're training for an Ironman or something that can break down the system. Yeah. So then all these things in, in context. Mm -hmm. I think awareness by itself can do a lot once we become more aware of the patterns we, we have about our emotions, right? It's like, just like you said, two people can have the, the greatest like interest for each other, but if you put a filter like a filter of uh, emotions of frustration of madness when you're angry then no matter what the people are going to say to you those filters of emotions going to to see you are going to see stuff differently right it's yeah. like me bringing you a, a glasses and i see tell you once you put that glasses uh, on all you see is bad stuff so no matter what i'm going to tell you you're going to see bad stuff so it's being aware of the emotional patterns that we have, but like I know for myself, I, I know a lot, but uh, execution it, it's really hard because then you know it intellectually, but once you get into those stress mode, then your body react, right? So you start reacting and uh, most of us, what do we do? We, we try to seek for instant pleasure. So we eat because, you know, when, once you eat, then you feel stressless, right? Because your body is absorbing food, so you become more calm. So for people that overweight, for example, that they have stress because they go to food, what would you suggest to them in order to calm themselves? Mm. So emotional eating. Mm -hmm. Oh man, this is another huge topic. Like the very act of eating itself is going to heavily involve emotions. Whether you're quote, emotional eating and you have an issue or not, because food creates this uh, interaction with the chemistry in our bodies, you know, and part of the part of the reason that food, if we're not talking about fake processed new foods, we're talking about just real foods from the earth that humans have evolved eating. A lot of the food, kind of the majority in most cases, tastes good to humans, which is a driver for us to eat them. That's part of what flavor indicates. Flavor indicates nutrition in a crazy way. You know, there's a lot of data coming out about this right now. And even like eating a certain fruit at the right time, at the right state of ripeness, we are drawn to that. If something's not quite ripe yet, the nutrition profile hasn't been dialed in and we, it doesn't taste as good. But at that perfect state of ripeness, we get everything we need. Or if it's overripe, again, it's like a... It's like not a pleasurable experience and we won't eat much where there's like massive amounts of sugar that have developed, for example, like a banana without balancing factors. So understand eating is emotional in and of itself. Mm -hmm. However, when we're going to that as a stress reliever, what we found with folks who, uh, quote, emotionally eat is that or have like a food addiction, their levels of dopamine 
are higher prior to eating the meal. So they have a greater expectation of pleasure and a drive to get that food. And you would think that if we're looking at brain imaging scans, when they eat the food too, that they're going to experience more pleasure. But that's not what we find, all right? We actually find that it's just the wanting is higher, but the pleasure is equal, if not lower, than folks who have a normal relationship with food. So what does that do? That creates a situation where they continue to get let down by the food that they're eating. They want it really bad and they're let down, so they look for the next thing and the next thing and the next thing. They're not really getting fulfilled, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. And so keeping that in mind that there's a real chemistry, again, going on in our brains in relationship to food. Food can be an instant stress reliever, and that's okay in some, in some context. You know, maybe, for example, carbohydrates. This is the greatest macronutrient associated with increasing your serotonin, right? Serotonin is this kind of feel-good neurotransmitter. And maybe if you eat a little bit of something that has a little bit more carbs, it does help you to kind of mellow out. But the issue is, are you going too far down the rabbit hole, hole or not? You know, so um, part of dealing with emotional eating is the, the, I think something on the, on the spectrum would be mindful eating. And this is a big topic that's being talked about a lot today. You know, so being aware and being present as you're consciously de deciding that I'm going to eat this, you know, sweet potato brownie or whatever it is. And you're not just like cramming it into your mouth, but you're actually there and present and you experience the, the, the biting into it, you experience the flavor going throughout your mouth, and you experience the, the feeling of having it going down into your system, and you're just there with it. You actually feel so much more satisfaction. On brain scans, we'll see the satisfaction levels go up, not just the anticipation of feeling better, but you can actually, and now you eat one brownie instead of the whole damn tray mm -hmm. because you're there and you're present with it. So I think a good, important strategy is for folks who are dealing with emotional eating is to get some, get some books or, you know, look into some research about mindful eating because it's like an instant um, kind of, I don't want to say cure, but um, an instant bridge to getting out of being controlled by food to help to balance your emotions. Yes. And uh, what about focus and energy? Because uh, energy, is, I believe, is kind of a standard, right? Because like... Okay, right now we're in a podcast, and if you have a level of energy that you say, okay, no matter what uh, I add in my day, I'm going to deliver, because that's my standard. Just like you have a standard for your body, your relationship, your finance, everything. So it's kind of a standard. But on the other side, there is physiological stuff in our body that no matter how our standard is, we tend to like, okay, we get a, a little bit more sleepy and our energy getting lower and our focus is even lower. So what is the kind of uh, tools or stuff that uh, might be helpful for people in order to get their focus really, really high and their energy as well? As far as uh, if we look at, at the mind aspect and nutrition. Really quickly, the, the biggest component here with our focus, so we got a, a recent study done where they have students, uh, and, and some of them, they, they allow them to become sleep-deprived, and they have them come in and complete tasks. And what they found is that basically every, every hour that these folks, matter of fact, let me make this even more simple. What they find in, in clinical data, let me give you actually one complete study. So this was done, this was published in The Lancet, by the way, if anybody wants to look this up, and then I'll come back to this other one. But they took test subjects, and these were actually physicians, and they had them to complete a task. Then they sleep-deprived them, and then they had them come back and complete the same task. What they found was that when they were sleep-deprived, they end up making 20% more mistakes. What is that? Lack of focus. And it took them 14% longer to do the same exact task. So this gets into a place of understanding that when we're looking for focus, the biggest component here in our brain working properly to be able to maintain focus and kind of get into these alpha waves is having adequate sleep. We're immediately putting ourselves at a handicap when we're not getting adequate sleep. It's like the biggest player by far. 
And then the other study that I was mentioning before was that basically, just to kind of summarize the study, they found that when students were sleep deprived, they spent far more time doing what we're calling now cyber loafing. So this is where, you know, you're supposed to be completing a task. Maybe you're working on notes for the podcast. Maybe you're doing research. Maybe you're working on your book. Maybe you're handling stuff at the office. And then you just do more uh, just checks, right? That's when you just check your phone for a minute. Let me just check Instagram real quick. Just check Twitter. Just check my email. And you're reaching over and you're doing these just checks far more frequently when you're sleep deprived. When you know you need to be on task, but you're having that lack of focus. So at the end of the day, again, our sleep qualities are the utmost importance. And so to kind of consolidate that and bring this back to the point with the nutrition. So in regards to focus, you know, I think that, listen, it's not, it's not just the nutrition, but also let me say something really quickly about exercise. And so we see increases in things like brain derived neurotrophic factor, you know, with exercise. And so this is something that helps neurons to fire more, more adequately, correctly, is protective over the brain. It really helps to increase that focus that we're looking for. And energy, in and of itself, if we define what energy looks like, it's kind of an experience in our body. But energy is something that's very interesting in the context of humans because, so what we know now is we have these mitochondria in our cells that create ATP, which is what we consider this energy currency in the body. So with the nutrition piece, this is just like blew my mind because this is not what I was taught in school. You know, I was taught ATP is this energy currency, but it's kind of inert. It's only active when ATP is combined with magnesium ion. So it's MGATP. That's when it's active, when we can experience this energy exchange in the body. So if we're deficient in a basic nutrient like magnesium, which is responsible for over 325 biochemical processes in the body, that's 325 things your body can't do properly or do at all in regards to energy functioning in your system. All right, so what do we need to do there with our nutrition? We need to make sure we're getting adequate food first, sources of magnesium. Why food first? Because this is what humans have evolved having the most. And it has an intelligence in interacting with your cells. And so what does that look like? Very best source is green leafy vegetables. All right, no diet. Well, there is probably some crazy diet that no diet is saying you should eat less vegetables. You know, that's something that's whether it's vegan, whether it's paleo, keto, whatever the case might be, vegetables are all good. But how often are we actually proactively doing this? Mm -hmm. Right. And one study, this was done, um, uh, a meta-analysis. And what they found was that folks who eat two servings of green vegetables a day, have brain, and this was done on senior population, have, a brain, have brains that are on average 11 years younger than other people in their population. So again, we're talking about focus. How's your brain? So this is something that can literally keep your brain younger, but are you doing it? So this is a very tangible, actionable thing. So we got exercise component as far as brain-derived neurotrophic factor, uh, increasing these endorphins that help with focus as well. We've got nutrition piece, getting these green leafy vegetables in, magnesium is an important source. And also, last thing I'll share, your brain is mostly fat and water. So if you're deficient in dietary fats, not giving your brain the raw materials it needs, things are going to suck, mm -hmm. all right? Your brain, even though it's a really small organ in the context of your body, it's actually using about 25% of your calories that you consume. Mm -hmm. It's very energy hungry because it's doing so much stuff. Mm -hmm. And so we need to make sure we're adequately feeding that brain. So these dietary fats, omega-3s, everybody knows about this now, but are you doing it? Um, in the context of um, you know, ALA and CLA as well. So there's all these different monounsaturated, there's polyunsaturated. Monounsaturated is kind of rising to the top as far as focus and energy in the brain. So avocados, nuts and seeds, so, uh, fatty fish, all these things are going to be viable sources of getting that dietary fat. So as far as for amounts, for example, because many people, okay, understand, and if we look at magnesium, what is a good amount that we want to aim for? Because each person uh, can be a 200 pound, 180 pound, 160. So what is like the average in order to magnesium to really work for you? That's a really tough question, man. It's uh, ultimately, you know, this goes back to what you said earlier. 
you know, because everybody's different. And also it can be different for you, for you from day to day mm-hmm. because magnesium deals in, it's a stress modulator. It's kind of like an anti-stress mineral. And so the higher your level of stress, the more your body's getting zapped of magnesium. This is why 80%, over 80% of the population is chronically deficient in magnesium, according to the data. Mm-hmm. All right. So with that said, it's going to change from day to day. But what we can target is number one, two to four, depending on body weight levels of stress, maybe five servings of green leafy vegetables. So that's number one. So if you're a smaller person, stress is cool, two servings will do the trick. If you're dealing with stress, maybe three, four. If you're you know, somebody who's heavier, maybe you're you know, six, four, 250 pounds, we wanna be higher in that spectrum. But then also, this is something I would advocate for people to do, not necessarily bring in a supplement, um, but with a supplement like Magnesium Calm is a really popular product. You have to be careful with that because this can actually cause you to sh- shit out some of your magnesium because taking a magnesium supplement, it orally brings a lot of uh, water to your bowels. So if you have even a little bit more than your bowel tolerance, it will cause diarrhea. All right. So the best way to do this is to get a topical magnesium that you can rub into your skin because your body will, with some of these, they're like 99% absorbable. Your body can only absorb as much as it can use, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. So there's no surefire way to know how much magnesium anybody actually needs. There are only these dietary recommendations, which are usually based on a population of sick people. So, but what I use personally, just say 300 out of 365 days a year, I'm using some topical magnesium on my skin. Okay. For a lot of people, it helps to relax. It's great to do before bed. But for some people, it actually can increase their energy. You know, it might be something you want to do when you get out of the shower in the morning. Yeah, I will also add about uh, the focusing because I remember uh, I interviewed uh, Patrick David, if you know him. And uh, Patrick said that uh, motivations, uh, your focus is comes from your level of motivation. So, for example, if it's 2 a.m. at night, and you really, really, you know, you've been through a really rough day and you want to sleep. And all of a sudden, like a crazy model, really, really beautiful woman approach you and said, how about we go to my house? So what is uh, your level of energy is going to be? So <laughs> you will rise to the top, right? So I, I think it's really important for us to know our triggers and what clicks us. So for me, for example, music can be really useful. So if you are really, really like tired and you don't have uh, like energy to go to the gym, put the music, put something, motivational video, something that's going to trigger you to get your levels of energy higher because it's a lot of mental sync, right? Absolutely. That's such great advice. There's so many things that can trigger because again, your thoughts are chemistry mm-hmm. and even with music, it's changing your perception of the music is what changes the chemistry in your body. Mm-hmm. You know? So ultimately I think a big takeaway from today is your perception is your reality, yes. you know, and you have the opportunity at all times to address how you're perceiving the stimuli that you're exposed to and also the stimuli and the, and the information inside your own body yes. and perceiving that data in the way that empowers you. Mm-hmm. Last question is, what would be your legacy that you would like to live long after you won't be here? I would like to see if, I would know that my life really had um, the value that I know is possible if, you know, when I leave here, that humanity overall, that we have, um, greater levels of communication and compassion in the context of how we, how we relate to each other. I think that a lot of people, we don't do well, we don't interact very well because we don't feel well. You know, it's very difficult to be patient and compassionate with another human being if you feel like shit, you know, and it just, it is what it is. So um, my mission is through, through the medium of health and fitness is to help humanity to better relate to each other so that we can figure out some of these stupid problems that we're dealing with that we're often creating um, with everybody wanting the same thing ultimately. Everybody wants to be happy and healthy and successful, but we are going about it in a way that we're hurting each other a lot of times. And 
you know, so that's part of my big mission. And uh, I would feel like uh, my legacy is kind of fulfilled if I'm able to, to make a big impression on that. Yeah, that's, that's a beautiful uh, legacy to live. And uh, for people that just didn't see this, because most are going to hear, once I ask you these questions, like you would see your body was like your, your eyes were lighting up and uh, it can really show how much uh, it means to you and how much you care about others. So I really want to thank you very much for your time uh, on being on the show with the Mind Body Podcast. And uh, where can uh, people find you and more stuff about uh, what you do? Awesome. Uh, thank you so much for that. And so uh, most people know me from my show. It's called The Model Health Show. And uh, it's regularly number one podcast, uh, health podcast in the U.S. I'm very, very, very grateful to say that. And uh, we do master classes on particular subject matter, you know, so uh, people can find me there. And my home online is themodelhealthshow.com. So you could find Sleep Smarters there or any, you know, bookstores. It's translating like, I think it's like 20 different countries now. Uh, so it's more easily accessible or Amazon. And all my social media is there as well at themodelhealthshow.com. And that's it, man. Thank you. That's awesome, man. Thank you so much for the time. My pleasure. If you enjoyed this interview or any other one from the Mind Body Podcast, feel free to subscribe to my podcast at iTunes, Spotify, SoundCloud, and at my YouTube channel. Also, feel free to share this podcast on Instagram by tagging the Mind Body Podcast. Do you want to be a part of the Mind Body Podcast? So remember the FAST factor. The FAST factor stands for 1. Facebook. Become a part of the Mind Body Podcast community by joining our Facebook community just by searching on Facebook the Mind Body Podcast community. Number 2. Act. Don't just be a passive listener. Act upon what you've just learned by applying one simple thing from any episode or interview. 3. Subscribe. Don't forget to subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, Spotify, SoundCloud, or if you're visual like me, then just search the Mind Body Podcast on YouTube. And number four, train others. Because just like I always say, leaders create leaders, and you're all here to grow together. And by training others, you're training yourself. So this is the fast factor. Remember it. Facebook, act, subscribe, and train others. Oh, and please feel free to leave a review which will engage all your VAC senses. And the VAC senses stands for visual, auditory, and kinesthetic, which when you use all the three combined, you remember stuff much better. For more information about my coaching, public speaking, and taking your mind and body to all new levels, check my site at lidodayan.com. Till then, never, ever forget to smile. See you soon.